0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can uh, turn to Matthew 12 this morning. We'll uh, cut you some slack from trying to open to Matthew, Mark, and Luke simultaneously. We've done that for the last two weeks. Uh, This morning, as far as the gospel record is concerned, we will stay pretty close to Matthew 12. But we will be uh, going beyond the gospel record here this morning as we examine what this unpardonable sin is all about. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that each believer is equipped with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we humble ourselves under the authority of your word, and we thank you for the privilege we have to assemble together, to show ourselves approved. Father, we thank you for the freedom our nation enjoys, the blessings we have to be able to assemble together without fear of uh, the government coming in and hauling us away or, or uh, violence directed against us, Father, as happens in so many other places around the world. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have to have the whole council line upon line, precept upon precept, and when we encounter a difficult passage, such as uh, sometimes people can get worked up over the unpardonable sin, Father, I pray that we would simply uh, relax in your grace, relax in your, uh, the, the provision of the Holy Spirit to guide us in all things, even the deep things of God. So, Father, set aside distractions, open the eyes of our understanding, and bless us with the truth of your word this morning. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is episode 24 out of 56 events that take place in the um, Galilean ministry. And we are coming towards the end of the Galilean ministry. You say, how is 24 out of 56 coming towards the end? Well, the ones we have coming up will be very fast ones coming up. There's, uh, yes, there's some uh, obviously depth in, in a number of them, but I'd say we're, we're good halfway through the Galilean ministry at this point. As we studied this text from Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 11, the uh, context is the casting out of a demon, and uh, the, the uh, antagonism that's been growing and growing and growing has gotten out to the point where they are, the opponents are getting very vocal in their opposition, even to the point of ascribing demonic powers uh, as being the authority by which the Lord is doing these things. And so, let's just get a reminder of what we're looking at here in Matthew 12, starting in verse 22. A demoniac who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man, this one, casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. A lot of times people take that verse and they read it the wrong way and they say, well, Satan's house is not divided. Actually, that's not what that says. Satan's house is divided. And that's precisely what it says. And this ought to be a a form of encouragement. I know I, for one, am very encouraged to know that this world is passing away and along with it its lusts. If, and he does, Satan casts out Satan, he is divided, and he is. How then will his kingdom stand? Well, it won't, and that's a matter for our praise. If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So that's where we left off, and that's where we want to jump into it here this morning. We examine uh the episode here taking place in Capernaum, described as home, under point 1. I turn that ringer off. All right. Under point two, somebody always thwarts me. I turn it off, and someone comes along and says, The ringer's always off. Yeah. Next thing, I'm going to rip it out of the wall and throw it in the trash. The, uh, what do we need a phone for? Secondly, Jesus heals a demoniac and the resultant criticism opens the door of opportunity for teaching angelic conflict principles. We want to recognize the open doors when they're there. And they may come about through conflict. Are we willing to endure the conflict if it means that it will present an open door opportunity for christ to be glorified if that means i have to go through some hardship i have to suffer whatever it is he asked me to do well if that's his plan and design for opening a door of opportunity to glorify jesus christ then uh, why would i be unwilling to pay the price that he has uh determined when he has set a course before us our position is to run with endurance the race that is set before us all right that's the second point the third point the Lord's authority in casting out demons prompted some to consider him as being the son of David. Now, they ask this in a skeptical manner. They ask this uh, with the, he cannot be, can he? And they have that skepticism there. All right. Under point four, the brood of vipers. The brood of vipers accuses the Lord of being possessed and using satanic power to cast out Satan. Speaking of satanic power, what is up with that phone? <laughs> okay. i make Casey a deacon here. Deacon Casey. All right. Father, we pray for a concentration upon the material. We thank you for clearing away the distractions. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Brood of vipers. Lord didn't have any time for him. I don't have any time for him. Point five, we dealt with Beelzebul. Beelzebul. Let me get to slide seven here. And all of last week was centered on Beelzebul. This uh, Beelzebub, Beelzebul, the god of Ekron, the god that the Philistines would fall down and worship. Interesting, the, the Philistines had a hard time with their gods. Some of them kept falling down in front of the Lord God of Israel in uh, different ways. They had... Uh, um, this God that they were very pleased with, very proud of, that they worshipped. And Elijah made a total fool out of him on, on Mount Carmel, uh, mocking his prophets, mocking his priests, and all the rest. And so last week's lesson that gave us more information on Beelzebul is uh, is available for you as well. Now, under point six, the three lines of thinking. As we ran out of time here. Jesus answered his critics with three lines of thinking. I'm just going to put them up here for us to look at again. First of all, divided kingdoms don't stand. Something that churches ought to keep in mind. Because all too often in the history of the church, um, churches have been at one another. And there's there's no place for that. We're supposed to be obvious with respect to who we are by virtue of the love that we manifest towards one another. An unbeliever ought to look at us and they may know nothing else about us other than the fact that we manifest a love towards one another that's more powerful than anything they can possibly understand. And they don't understand why when they're living in the midst of a doggy-dog world where it's, you know, do whatever you have to to get ahead, they don't understand who this body of people are that love one another. This body of people that esteem the other as more important than themselves. That is alien to this cosmos world's way of thinking. So, obviously, kingdoms, cities, houses, local churches, marriages, anything with that internal division, it's doomed. Portrayed for us here in Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 11. Likewise, we have these pharisaical exorcists, and, uh, and he just nails them right here. He says, if, if I'm using the demonic power to do this, then what are your exorcists doing? Now, it, it's a rhetorical question. It's not meant to be answered. It really can't be answered because it's, it, it sets them up with, with an unanswerable uh, conundrum. If they answer, well... No, obviously ours don't. Well, then they have to admit the possibility that, that that's not what he's doing either. See, if it, in other words, if they're saying that the only way he can do this is to be demon possessed. Well, then they have to admit the same thing for their own exorcists. If, if the only way Jesus can be casting out this demon is through demonic power. Well, then that that lumps their guys into the same boat. And, and, and so he's he's caught them here in their own in their own trap. And the, uh, the passage there in the, in the uh, book of Acts I mentioned last week is, is a good passage where you could observe the impotence of these Jewish exorcists, where they try to use their incantations, they try to use formulas, they even try to invoke the name of Paul. They you know, they ab- say, "I abjure you by this, Jesus whom Paul preaches." And the demons just turn to these exorcists and say, "Well, we know Jesus and we've heard of Paul, but who do you guys think you are?" And they just turn and ripped him to shreds. All right. And it's it's funny because I have that kind of twisted, humorous sense of humor. I can laugh when I read that, but it's not a joking matter when you stop to consider how deadly, how serious demonism actually is. So these uh, I, I think it's kind of neat the way the Lord phrased it this way. Um, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Uh, it's, it's convicting right there. Now, I think we all can answer this. Were, were the Pharisees, uh, uh, sons of Pharisees, you know, were the Pharisees' students, were they using the Holy Spirit? Were they representing the kingdom of God? No. So who were they casting out demons by? Okay. Let's realize that's the reality of what was taking place, which is why the Pharisees were so eager to lay that accusation, because that's what they were involved in. You know, and it's, it's often the case of the pot calling the kettle black. It's exactly what they're doing, and so they accuse others of doing it. The problem is, as soon as they lay that accusation, Christ is able to turn the tables on them and say, well, is this what you've been doing all along? Keep this in mind, by the way. So many of the modern uh, you know, the signs and wonders crowd, it's all just staged demonism. And you set somebody up with a demonic illness and then somebody else comes along and does this supposed healing and, oh, praise the Lord, and all this wonderful stuff's taking place, but it's not godly. It's, demon- it's demonism masquerading as Christianity to, to uh, dupe the unsuspecting, and it's, uh, it's pretty sad because it thrives in our, in our culture. All right, then the third line of argument, if, and it is, First class condition, this is a true statement. If this is the Holy Spirit at work, then Israel is presently beholding the at-hand kingdom of God. And And we need to really even intensify that. We'll intensify that under point seven. Not only is it at hand, but the statement here is upon you in verse 28. That's a big difference between being at hand and being upon you. Up till now, the message has been the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now it is literally upon you. It's crashing down on your heads. And we'll talk about that here shortly because that's why the forces of darkness are so terrified in the Great Tribulation. They even request the mountains to come crashing down on their heads. They're hiding from God's holiness. They're hiding from God's wrath. And we'll have some of those verses coming up this morning. Now, The unpardonable sin, in this context, point seven, the attribution of satanic power rather than the Holy Spirit's power constitutes the unpardonable sin. The attribution, and this is in this context, will describe what the unpardonable sin is and relate it to other contexts, specifically our own context as church-age believers in the 21st century. But here in this Matthew 12 passage and Mark 3, the attribution of satanic power rather than the Holy Spirit's power for the work of Jesus Christ constitutes the unpardonable sin. And we're going to read it for what it says, and then we're going to start making some um, explanations. Verse 31 is a therefore. And we don't want to lose track of the therefore. In fact, Oh, who said it? Now, lots of people have said it, but I forget who gets credit for quoting it. But um, whenever you encounter a therefore, you want to ask yourself what it's there for. What's the context? What's it building on? What's it concluding? In this case, the, the therefore in verse 31 is following the uh, the message of, of you're either with me or against me in verse 30. So let's... Uh, I haven't read even verse 28 or 29 yet. Verse 28, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That is a truth. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? God's kingdom is here and nothing is more powerful. Part of the reason why we know believers can't be demon-possessed. Now verse 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. That is what is underneath the therefore. You're either with me or you're against me. It's kind of like the, you know, our president made a speech like that about the war on terror. You know, it's time to decide what side you're on. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Let's stop right there. Because so often that first half of the verse is totally ignored. When people want to latch on to that last part of the verse and go, "Oh, there's a sin that can't be forgiven. Okay, so what does that mean? Does that mean if I'm a believer and I commit that sin, that sin can't be forgiven, so I lose my salvation, I'm going to die and go to hell? Is that what that verse means? No. Let's recognize that the second half of the verse follows the first half of the verse, and let's realize what uh, is truly being said. Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven. That's a statement. However, blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And then it gets amplified in verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. However, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So we're dealing here with a two-sided coin, and we get it in verse 31, we get it in verse 32. So we want to be able to handle both sides of this coin uh, in order to make the right application. Now, we're going to give this to you under six subpoints and A, B, C, D, E, and F, and uh, we'll go as slow as we have to. And no one will be dismissed today until they understand it. And I'll assign a quiz afterwards to make sure you understand the material. It was like Sunday; you were not dismissed unless you understood what the sin of death was all about on Sunday. All right, point A. The use of Spirit of God, in verse 28, the Spirit, in verse 31, and the Holy Spirit, in verse 32, help to frame the context for this difficult passage. These are the markers in the text that show us where our context is and what is the marker for the passage. We have, notice verse 28, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There's our first reference to the Spirit. Likewise, in verse 31, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy should be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit, it doesn't say Holy Spirit, but that's what it is, Spirit shall not be forgiven. And then in verse 32, Whoever speaks the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or the age to come. So there's your uses of pneuma, of Spirit. This is what helps us to frame the context for the passage all too often the the focus is is tunnel vision. The focus is narrowed right here to verses thirty one and thirty two with a very uh, zoomed in view. It's like you're on Google Earth and you've got it zoomed in so far, you're looking at 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 people, and you're supposed to back out and look at the whole state. okay If all you're doing is zooming in on thirty one and thirty two, you lose track of the context where the spirit is first mentioned in verse 28, and also the reason why this is a therefore passage in verse 31. So let's broaden the the view out a little bit and recognize that the whole package comes together from verse 28 down through verse 32. Now, point B. With victory over diabolical forces, diabolical meaning Satan's, He is ha-diabolos. He is the slanderer. Let's keep that in mind. With victory over diabolical forces. Because what we're talking about here is slander. Don't don't lose track of of the term blasphemy. Because it sounds so theological. It's slander. Blasphemy is an application of slander directed against God. Alright? So... With victory over the slandering forces, the diabolical forces, the kingdom of God is not only at hand, but literally upon you. And we won't take the time to turn back there, but uh, if you've been in the study, you recognize that we've had the kingdom of God messages already from Matthew 3, 2, Matthew 4, 7, Matthew 10:7. Remember, the gospel of Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom. He presents Christ the king. And so this should not be a startling statement that's found here in this chapter. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. One of the promises that was made was that in the, in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, there would be a, a, an outpouring of God the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus Christ shows up and the Spirit of God comes upon him and he starts performing these miracles, these signs and wonders uh, that ought to be a wake-up call for these people. It was, at least for, for Nicodemus, uh, at least it overpowered his prejudice and allowed him to show up at night and start asking questions. It should have been a wake-up call for the other Pharisees as well. It's literally, it's upon you. And, uh, you know, you can, you, can only, you can only delay so long. When it's there, it's there. I've, I've given the gospel to people that say, well, I'll think about it. Really? How long? You know, you can take too long. You can take too long. As uh, one of the soldiers I went to Desert Storm with, we talked about it before we went to Desert Storm. There were five of us sitting in a room. We were relaxing after a long day of work and, and uh, sitting there in the barracks and talking about our upcoming deployment. And they were telling us then the casualty estimates were going to be 20%. You don't have to be too mathematical to figure out that 20% is one out of five. And there's five of us sitting in the room. And we said, hey, one of us isn't coming back. So we started talking about it talking about what eternal life was, what the Bible's about, what does God say, and different things. And this one kid who had Christian for a middle name, you'll we'll never forget him, but he was not a Christian. He was not born again. And he was laughing about it, joking about it, saying, no, I'll get religious when I'm older. Well, what, why wait? You want to know what he said? The reason why was he was having too much fun. He was young, he was good looking, he had girls hanging all over him, and he, you know, he knew it was wrong. You know, if he, had to, if he had to live according to the Bible, then that would be an end to his promiscuity. So his view was, you know, he'll get religious when he's older. Well, he didn't get old. He died on my birthday just three months after that. So, uh, you know, how long are you going to wait? There's only so much time. And when it's at hand, that's one thing. That's, that's imminent. But when it's upon you, too late. Here it is. So the context here, the casting out of these demons, the demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power, victory. This is, this is simply a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. If you think, you know, the, the demons were trembling in Christ's first advent, <laughs> that, was, that was his coming in humility. You know, when he's casting out demons here in first advent, that's almost just simply accidental or secondhand or just, you know, they're in his way, he has, he has work to do. So he drives the demons out. But when he comes in second Advent, in power and great glory, with with none of the laying aside of privileges or or the, uh, the, the limitations that he accepts in the first Advent, look out. So the kingdom of heaven is upon you. Now thirdly, acceptance versus rejection. Acceptance versus rejection of Christ is an absolute either or decision. You're either with me or you're against me. He who is not with me is against me. It's the first part of verse 30. He who does not gather with me scatters. So it's, it's black and white. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either in fellowship or out of fellowship. You're either spiritual or you're carnal. So much of the Christian life is an either or situation. So often, how many in recent messages have we pointed out various things that are not either ors but are both ands? Okay, and there's places for that. Here, though, you can't have a both-and. This is an either-or. You're either with me or against me. You cannot serve two masters. So it's uh, with versus against. Gather with Christ versus scattering. Versus scattering. And the reason why we're looking at this is because this is the context for the uh, concept of sins not being forgiven. Again, verse 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now, Israel today is looking forward to a gathering. Right? The regathering of Israel. The gathering in belief. Their present gathering is unbelief. What about the gathering here? In this gospel where Christ is assembled, where Christ Christ is walking in the earth. What kind of gathering was that? It's interesting because the promises that were made through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, the promises of, of, of gathering, of regathering, were for a worldwide regathering. And yet when Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah led the Jews out of their exile back into the land, was it a worldwide regathering? No. No. Not even close. It was actually a remnant that had gone back to the land. More remained in Babylon than went back to Jerusalem. More remained in the Diaspora than went to Jerusalem. The population of, of Jerusalem, the pop- population of Israel in Jesus' day, was lower than the Jewish population worldwide at that time. See? So, um, well, let's look at it. Let's, let's make these other passages here. Um, And I want to do it in this order, starting with Isaiah 2, verses 10 through 21. Isaiah 2, 10 through 21. And hopefully you'll you'll start to gather what happens here. How the choice to not gather is understandable when the people you're talking about are plunged in darkness it's what christ pointed out in in the gospel of john that the light came into the world but men hated the light they loved the darkness rather than the light why because their deeds were evil likewise when it comes to being gathered by the christ versus fleeing and hiding from the christ the uh, what's the difference between the two categories the negative volition the sin the evil on the part of those that uh, that uh, don't want to gather, that don't want to come. Okay. Now in Isaiah 2, it's kind of a long context, but we can pick it up um, before, even before verse 10. First of all, let's just recognize that this is about the last days. Uh, Isaiah 2:2. Two, two, the word which Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways." And that we may walk in His path for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What a day that's going to be. What Gentile nations will realize we need to go to Jerusalem because that's where we can get instructed. The Lord dwells there. We can have the Jewish people teach us his law. We can walk in his light. What a blessing. And he will judge between the nations. He will render decisions for many people. See, we won't need the United Nations building in New York. <laughs> All right. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. How often does that verse get quoted? But realize that that verse cannot be fulfilled until Jesus Christ has returned and he's ruling in Jerusalem and the Gentile nations are submitted to him and going to Jerusalem for his decisions. Once that takes place, sure, we don't need a military anymore. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. I'm not going to take you into this this morning, but stop to consider. Never again will they learn war. Ask yourself, what then is the form of warfare that they're engaged in when they gather as the sand of the seashore at Gog Magog? Because it is called a war, but it's not a military war. When you relate Revelation 20 to Isaiah 2, 4, you have to make a decision. Because they never again learn war in a military uh, tactical sense. But when they're gathered, Gog Magog rebellion, Revelation 20, it is for war. Well, what kind of war is that? I'll tease you with that and then uh, we'll get to it in in time. Verse uh, 5, Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, here comes this invitation, Come. And I love Isaiah. Isaiah is a great gospel of grace in the Old Testament. And how many times is the invitation given, Come. Okay? And it, it... A promise of the Gentiles coming to the Jews and and peace on earth and all that great stuff is wonderful. Except, of course, if Israel is still pagan and in rebellion and in all kinds of darkness and so forth, then that's a problem. So Israel has to make sure that they're walking in the light first. And uh, so the the invitation is now uh, given. Here come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And the reminder, you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob and and the things there. Alright, that gets us ready for verse 10. Because what happens here, um, by virtue of their idolatry, by virtue of their evil, listed in verses 7, 8, and 9, the land has been filled with idols, they worship the work of their hands. So, if that's your life, if your life is idolatry, And you're living in the world and for the world. And all of a sudden the Lord comes back and says, Come, what's your reaction going to be? (laughs) That's right. That's why it says in verse 10, Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. For those that are regenerate, the coming of Christ is going to be wonderful. Couldn't come any sooner. Couldn't come too soon. See, Maranatha, I mean, we embrace, we, we, we rejoice to see him. But for those involved in idolatry, it's a terror. So, enter uh, the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. See, that's totally opposite of what they were doing. They were all about self-exaltation. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. Remember, if you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you in the proper time. But if you exalt yourself, everyone who exalts himself will be brought low. It will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that the lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft. The pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Keep in mind, I, I hope that this will be a passage that will come to mind when you stop to consider what our part in the angelic conflict is supposed to be. Why the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. For we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that is lifted up against the knowledge of God. Take that 2 Corinthians 10 passage related to Isaiah 2 and start to uh, consider what, what the scope of the angelic conflict ought to be. Verse 18, but the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks, into holes of the ground, before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty, when He arises to make the earth tremble. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, in order to go into the cavern of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty, when He arises to make the earth tremble. So there is, in apocalyptic form, a preview for what we're going to deal with when we get in the book of Revelation. Micah 7.17, another related passage. Micah being a contemporary of Isaiah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah 7.17. Micah 7 can have some great comfort. Micah 7 is the chapter that talks about our sins being cast in the depths of the sea. But a little bit ahead of that context. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord, our God. They will come in dread and they will be afraid before you. Sounds confrontational, doesn't it? <laughs> well, why, why do we shy from conflict? Our message is inherently a message of conflict. When we're proclaiming the free gift, do you know what else we're saying? We're saying, He who is with me gathers to me and he who is against me scatters. Luke 23.30 Back to the Gospels. Luke 23.30 Now, here's Christ on the way to the cross, in fact, carrying the cross. And he stumbles and he's, he needs help. And they grab this Simon of Cyrene guy to help carry the cross. And uh, the Lord takes time to teach a Bible class en route. It says, following him was a large crowd of the people of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. So there we have it again. If we're not gathering to Christ, we're scattering, we're hiding, we're crawling into holes. We want the mountains to fall on us. We want to have nothing whatsoever to do with God, with His holiness, with His rule, with His reign. None of that. It's terrifying to the uh, unregenerate mind. Finally, the last passage in this context is Revelation 6, 12-17. And there may be more beyond this, but I thought this was a good sampling. Revelation 6, 12-17 Anybody can name the uh, the bowls, the vials, the trumpets? Can you name all seven? <laughs> Me either, but we got to study it because it's coming up in the book of Revelation. All right. You've got seals. And then the sixth seal is opened, and then the seventh seal. Uh, but that leads you on into the bowls and into the trumpets. Here we have the sixth seal in Revelation twi- uh, 6. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings, yeah, you thought Katrina was a disaster. <laughs> Imagine the worldwide destruction when this takes place. I don't imagine that FEMA will be very effective when uh, every mountain is uh, an island or moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Him who sits on the throne is God the Father. And this is the rejection of the Father and the Son. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, how do you hide from God? (laughs) But is that not what they've been doing all along anyway? Trying to in their minds? Acting as if there is no God? Acting as if they were their own God's? But see, now, it's not just a sense of, well, someday they'll have to give an account. Today's the day. The Lord is coming. Here's the earthquake. Here's the sign in heaven. Here's everything. And the fear is driving them to try to flee even to the depths of the earth, whatever it takes to get away from Jesus Christ when He returns at Armageddon. What a hopeless situation. And yet, it... It it simply reflects the insanity of the five-eye wills of the adversary who said, you know, I'm going to be like the Most High God. Really? (laughs) You, You still think so? Even when all this is taking place? So acceptance versus rejection. Acceptance versus rejection of the Christ. Now let's get back to Matthew 12. And realize, and when we talk about the unpardonable sin, we're talking about acceptance versus rejection of the Christ. Either being with Him or scattering from Him. All right. And now, hopefully, we've got a better um, sense for what this scattering from Him is all about. True. Nobody in that day is to the point where they're Pulling mountains on top of themselves. Nobody today is crawling into the ground and pulling a mountain on top of themselves. But metaphorically, when they're rejecting the gospel, what else would you call it? They don't want to hear the truth. You're trying to give them the truth, you're trying to tell them about salvation in Jesus Christ. All right, point D. Any sin, even blasphemy, is forgivable. Now let's take the A parts of these two verses. Verse 31a and verse 32a. Any sin, even blasphemy, even blasphemy, is forgivable for those who accept the anointed Christ. They're with Him. They gather to Him. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy, any sin, even blasphemy, if you take the uh, the and there, um, in that manner. Therefore, I say to you, any sin, even blasphemy, shall be forgiven. That's the A part. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. That's the B part. When we realize that for those who gather, for those who are with Christ, for those who, who uh, receive the gospel, sins are forgiven. That ought to make some sense. When we stop to consider the um, the role of the Holy Spirit and on all of the um, uh, revealing work that the Holy Spirit does at spotlighting the Christ, that's what He's doing today. Convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He is not revealing Himself. He's revealing the Christ. He says that He will take what is of mine and disclose it to you. So... Here we have, and this is not church age, this is, this is Old Testament still, but we see the role of the Holy Spirit anointing the Christ. He is revealing the Christ. The Christ is, is revealing the Father, and they're rejecting that. That's what we call rejection of the, of the uh, well, well, we'll bring it into a church age context here next. But that's what happens when the world rejects what the Holy Spirit is convicting it of, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the unbeliever rejects that and says, no, don't want any part of that. So any sin is forgivable for those who are anointed. But now, although forgivable, sin is not forgiven. Now we've got to the B parts of both of these verses. Verse 31b, verse 32b. Although forgivable, sin is not forgiven for those who reject the anointed Christ. In other words, they are against Him and they will be scattered away from Him in judgment. Although forgivable. You know what I think the biggest problem is? Is people take the verb, will not be forgiven, and they replace it with cannot be forgiven. In other words, they say because it won't be forgiven, they say it's unforgivable. Or, the title of the lesson, unpardonable. And that's not what this passage says. It doesn't say it's unpardonable. It says it will not be forgiven. Give me give a whole week to think about that one. It's like when God says He will remember our sins no more. Does that mean they're unrememberable? Or it means He chooses not to remember them? When these sins are not forgiven. Is it because they're unforgivable? Or because, as a consequence of their rejecting the Christ, they are not forgiven? That's, there is a distinction to be made between something that is able and something that is done. Um something uh, something that's washable does that mean it's going to be washed? <laughs> Maybe if I choose to wash I mean this shirt's washable, right? Your clothes are washable, but when do they get washed? now if you if you don't wash your shirt, does that make it unwashable? Ah, uh, light bulbs coming on. Just because you don't wash it doesn't make it unwashable. And just because this sin is not forgiven does not make it unforgivable. Because the text doesn't say it's unforgivable. Your margin probably does. Your footnote might. The title of the sermon does. And for 2,000 years since being written, this has been called the unpardonable sin. As a publishing blurb. But it does not say unforgivable. It says will not be forgiven. And I hope we can uh, make that distinction because I believe it is forgivable. It's just not just like our sins are, are rememberable. God can remember them because he's omniscient, but he chooses not to. Because he's judged those sins. He's sealed them in a bag. He's cast them behind his back. As far as the east is from the west, plunged them into the depths of the sea, and he will remember them no more. So let's keep in mind that just because God chooses not to do it does not make it unable. Okay? Again, what is the context here? He who does not gather with me scatters. And that is in that the thirty one B I'm sorry, the thirty B he who does not gather with me scatters. And the 31B, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And the 32B, speaking against the Holy Spirit. That's the, um, that's the pattern. I, I'm not explaining this very well this morning. I hope some of this is making sense. As we're looking at the... the sometimes it's not... The, the language doesn't bail you out in terms of vocabulary. It's the It's the structure. It's the syntax of the passage, where you have an A and a B, and then an A and a B, and then an A and a B. And that's exactly what we have here in these back-to-back verses. Verse 30, with me or against me. Verse 31, sin against Christ, sin against the Holy Spirit. See, and, and there's an interesting thing. How do you sin against one member of deity and not sin against all all deity? If, if you really want to take it that way, then you got something even tougher to describe than I've got to describe here this morning. (laughs) Because you've got to describe how you can sin against one member of deity and not sin against another member of deity. How does that happen? Or, we stop to realize, you know, that's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking about an either-or. And it happens to use Christ in the first half, and it happens to use the Holy Spirit in the second half, but the issue is accepting Christ or rejecting Christ. And I hope that um, that that comes across because um, there's this isn't the only place where such a, a construction is to be found and it's it's uh, not actually this is more poetical than anything else as far as the Hebrew poetry patterns are concerned and our Hebrew class will be picking up on some of that here on uh, on Tuesday nights. All right. In any event, verse. 31a and verse 32a, we can be with Christ. We can have any sin forgiven, any blasphemy forgiven. All right? In verse 31. And, uh, and even when He was hanging on the cross, the very people that were nailing Him there, He prayed to the Father, do not hold this sin against them, for they know not what they do. So, the, the a part of verse 30, the a part of verse 31, the a part of verse 32, that's all very good news. All right. Don't be afraid that uh, the B parts of these verses is something you have to worry about because you are not rejecting the Christ. You're a believer. See, people get worried about that. Well, what happens if a believer blasphemes the Holy Spirit? By definition, you can't because you're a believer. <laughs> the only way to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to reject the Christ that the Holy Spirit was revealing. So you're a believer. You're in the A part of verse 30, verse 31, and verse 32. You cannot commit the B part of verse 30, 31, and 32. Point F. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit as a rejection of His anointing of Jesus as the Christ, and therefore a rejection of the Holy Spirit's conviction ministry. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit as a rejection of His anointing of Jesus as the Christ And therefore, a rejection of the Holy Spirit's conviction ministry. And when we compare Matthew 12 with John 16, I think it falls into place. Matthew 12, 22 through 29, that's our context here. John 16, 8 through 11. Therefore, a rejection of the Holy Spirit's conviction ministry. Now, you and I can't... Some commentaries I don't think are very helpful because they say, well, you can't commit this sin today because in order to commit this sin, you had to have been living at the time Christ was here and you had to observe a miracle that he did by the power of the Holy Spirit and you had to ascribe uh, that activity to satanic power. Okay? Well, no. (laughs) Had you been around back then and had you done that back then, well, then sure, that would have qualified, but there's more to it than just simply that. You were rejecting the Holy Spirit's convicting ministry as spotlighting the Christ, the anointed One. John 16:8 through 11. That'll be our last passage this morning. John 16:8 through 11. And unfortunately, I think that that weak explanation that uh, says that you know you can't commit this sin today because in order to commit this sin you had to have been alive at that time and seen Christ's miracles and so forth, that's what's printed in the, through the Bible notebook, that believers today can't commit that sin because we're not back there where that sin was committed. This sin is not committed by believers. The sin is rejecting the revealed Christ as convicted by the Holy Spirit, and that's what's... The, the issue here where you're not with Christ, you're fleeing from him and and so forth. the difference between being saved and being lost all right so uh what I'm saying is these notes are superior to your through the Bible notes from uh five years ago or four years ago um, John sixteen he says and preparing them for this is the night in which he's betrayed and preparing them for after his departure. He says in verse 5, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. The disciples had a horrible time at the cross. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now this is the Helper, this is the Advocate, this is the Coming One. Muslims say that he's talking about Muhammad here. Uh, (laughs) Not who he's talking about. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And uh, interestingly enough, he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So try to make that apply to Muhammad. How do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> Muhammad didn't come to reveal the Christ, Muhammad came to denigrate the Christ and lift himself up. So, but. Notice the first order of business in the Holy Spirit's work in convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment is spotlighting the Christ. And either you're with Him or you're against Him. Same language, same concept that we have in Matthew 12. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The only way that their sin is an issue is by failing to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, I think everybody here in this room is a believer. Does the Holy Spirit still convict us of sin? As far as our daily walk is concerned, you bet. You better believe it. But so far as our eternal consequences are, not on your life. Never again. Our sins are sealed in a bag, cast in the depths of the sea. He will remember them no more. I'm hoping some of this is making sense. So far as our position as Christ is concerned, I cannot be worried anymore about the unpardonable sin. I can't be worried anymore about um, this uh, judgment that's coming because my sins are removed. They've been judged, judged on Christ. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. That's a powerful verse. Because you and I have the same privilege of going to the Father. We do, so we, he went literally, we go to the Father through prayer. We have His righteousness imputed to our account. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The ruler of this world has been judged. All right, so blaspheming the Holy Spirit is a rejection of His anointing of Jesus as the Christ. They looked at Him. They saw the Spirit-anointed Jesus Christ. You know how unique that was? Every single one of us got saved after the fact. We look back to the cross. I can guarantee nobody in this room was saved prior to 33 A.D. So we were all saved looking back at the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Old Testament believers were saved looking forward, believing that a Christ was coming believing that the seed of the woman was going to come, the son of David was going to come, the anointed one was going to come, was going to remove the sin of the world, was going to crush the serpent and redeem the human race. But this generation, the one that walked the earth with Christ, looked right at him. Looked right at him. The Holy Spirit descended as a dove. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He did all of these works by the power of the Holy Spirit know how unique that was? How vivid that must have been? And they still rejected him. Rejected who he was, what he was doing, and everything he had to say. All right. We have one last thing to deal with before we move on to episode 25, where Jesus answers the demand for a sign. And that's... uh, down in verses 38 through 45, before we can get to 38 through 45, we're going to have to deal with verses 33 through 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. So we will come back next week, Lord willing, and rapture pending, deal with verses 33 through 37. Then uh, we'll be ready for episode 25 in the Galilean ministry, the demand for a sign. That comes in verses 38 and following. And uh, we'll deal with Nineveh and uh, the Queen of the South and the things that happened there. All right. Any questions before or any questions? That can't wait till tonight. (laughs) Anything at all. It's not an easy text. And I think I I tried to make it simple because some people make it confusing as far as, you know, worried about can a believer commit the unpardonable sin and what happens if they do and so forth. I hope at least we figured out that by definition an unbeliever cannot because the, the sin itself is rejecting the Christ. So if you're a believer you're past that. You cannot be a rejecter of the Christ you've accepted the gift of salvation. Is that is that too complicated? Okay, surely. Sh- mhm. So that's why there were that's... Yes. Yeah, they are not accepting the Christ that he is revealing, correct? Right. Correct. And that's why the, um, the role of the Holy Spirit after Christ ascends is what it is, because that's what it was before Christ ascended. That's what the Holy Spirit was doing in and through Jesus Christ. But now that Christ ascends to the Father, He says, I will send the Helper, and He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment of sin, because they do not believe in Me. Right. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You for this morning and the privilege we have to uh, study these truths. Father, I pray for Your faithfulness in, in guiding us and giving us understanding. Pray that these things might be clear. And we thank You in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.